So we hear this story now. Listen with me for God's word to us today. Six days after the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one at the table with them. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, fill us up with the knowledge of you so that we cannot hold it in. Anoint us with your love that in hearing your word this day, we may be bearers of it, deep within ourselves, in life and in death. Amen. We have come, amazingly, again to the fifth Sunday of Lent. And before we process with Jesus into Jerusalem next week on Palm Sunday, Let's recall for just a moment where we were five weeks and a few days ago. It was with Ash Wednesday that we began this journey, as we do each year. The annual ritual that reminds us that from dust we have come, and to dust we will return. Just as there is value to the rituals of our regular lives of birthdays and holidays and long-held traditions, there is a deep richness to the symbols and the ritual acts of the church. While these are on grand display in these high liturgical seasons like Lent, they are always present with us. The water that trickles down our foreheads as a sign of grace the coarseness of the bread and the sweetness of the juice on our lips, signs of abundance and joy in the feast of salvation. The lighting of candles on Advent and the extinguishing of these in Good Friday. The light of God come into the world and the world that attempted, though failed, to snuff it out. The gritty feel of ashes upon our foreheads or on our hands, the signs that God claims us in life and in death. Usually, rituals are primary occasions for storytelling, says Gail Ramshaw, a liturgical scholar. At the ritual meal after burial, the mourners tell stories about the deceased. Annually, on the 4th of July, the New York Times dedicates a full page of reprinted, uh, to reprinting the handwritten Declaration of Independence so that avid readers can review the story behind the holiday. 
At the Jewish festival of the Passover, the ritual begins with the youngest child in the room asking, why is this night different from all other nights? To answer the question, the story of the ancient Hebrews' exodus from slavery in Egypt is told. At the ritual gathering, the rehearsal of the story reinvigorates the community of believers. Beginning with the ritual of Ash Wednesday as we do, and through this season of Lent, the occasion for our storytelling is the journey of Jesus to the cross. The scripture stories we hear in worship over these weeks are pockmarked with the shadows of death. And the nearer we get with Jesus and his followers to Jerusalem, the clearer this becomes. From a sojourn with the devil in the desert to disciples arguing their righteous placement in the coming kingdom, to stark reminders that trees which do not bear fruit will be cut down, to a home in Bethany where the smells of death and dinner intermingled to fill the space. Imagine it, a regular ritual of a meal with good friends. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Jesus, we are to assume we're good friends, especially after the act to which the gospel writer nods feverishly, noting that this one is the very Lazarus whom Jesus resurrected from the dead, the one for whom Jesus wept. This Martha and Mary, these were the sisters of Lazarus, the ones who called Jesus to the deathbed in the first place. The very Martha through her, who through her grief affirmed her faith in him. The very Mary who in her grief accused him of not coming soon enough. Then Jesus commanded Lazarus to come out from his tomb and Lazarus came, stinking probably to high heaven after having been dead for four days. I wonder if some of that smell lingered that night as the newly alive again Lazarus stretched the stiffness from his knees and Martha hurried about trying to make sure everyone had enough wine and Judas anxiously watched Mary, not quite sure what she was looking for. We can imagine the air in that space, rich with a mixture of tomb and table, and then all of a sudden, something else. She found the jar she had been searching for. Perhaps Mary held it for a moment and considered it, then making up her mind, she drew near to Jesus. Now certainly foot washing was not a new thing in the homes at that time. It was a daily ritual that told the story of a day's hard work. But she was not going to wash his feet. Mary had oil. She was going to anoint him. This was an entirely different ritual altogether. One performed for kings as oil was poured over their heads, setting them apart for leadership. And also, one performed for the dying, oil poured on their feet to prepare the body for its very end. While the oil on the head was reserved for a select few, oil on the feet did not discriminate from kings 
to prophets, to the poor. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. Every last one. Anointing oil was smelly, or so we hear. Once opened, it took over the room. Perhaps it was welcomed in this way, masking all else, calling attention to what was happening in the midst. This moment that would be told again and again, as Jesus remarked in other gospel tellings on the same story, truly I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. It was lavish and extravagant and outrageous. And let's be honest, sometimes that tends to make us uncomfortable. Judah spoke the words that could have been on the lips of any of the disciples. With his rebuke, Judas tells the story of what it is when, in trying to be good stewards of our faithfulness, we miss the opportunity before us to simply be overcome in devotion. When we spend more effort to carefully control every asset, every dollar, every gift, every commitment, every emotion, so that these become the currency of our faith more than all else. When pragmatism, rather than love, motivates our discipleship. In the Reformed tradition, we come by this honestly. Annually, Joyce and I gather new officers and train them as deacons and elders. We spend time with them uh, looking through the core tenets of Reformed theology, beginning with that central one, of course, the sovereignty of God, that God is in all things and through all things and with all things, from which all else flows, including the truth that as humans we fall short, we are prone to sin and rely every moment on grace. And then there is this one, too, that strikes me every time. In the Reformed tradition, we prioritize a faithful stewardship that shuns ostentation and seeks the proper use of God, the gifts of God's creation. While there is a lot of good here in the call for the careful use of the gifts of creation, it has also tripped us up in the past. In the height of the Reformation, one of the many complaints against the Catholic Church at the time had to do with the so-called extravagant decor that adorned sanctuaries and altars and church leaders alike. Fearing that these had become idols, John Calvin was particularly incensed in a fervor whipped up to obey the commandment against idolatry, images were covered, stained glass was smashed, statues removed from sanctuaries across Europe. For a couple of hundred years or so, it seems we shunned the idea that visual beauty had any place in sacred life. Thanks be to God, the Spirit does continue to reform us, and we have since repented of that particular sin. But I do wonder if it's still in our DNA. This desire to shun ostentation, does it still stunt our expressions of devotion? 
In the midst of a pragmatic society, we wish to be efficient, says Justo Gonzalez, a theologian of church history, to make certain that there is no waste. In the church, we look for responsible budgets that make the best possible use of every cent. However, for this to be true Christian discipleship, it must be founded not primarily on efficiency, but on overwhelming love that leads to what others might consider a mere waste. Lavish and eye-popping acts of love are the ritual story of Jesus' ministry. Eating with outcasts and casting out demons in concert with tax collectors and women and lepers. Every act of Jesus, it seems, is one of unbounded and extravagant and unmerited love that draws us nearer to the heart of God. Whether it is making wine out of water or turning over tables at a temple gate, stopping as he feels the tug on the hem of his clothes, arriving at a tomb and calling the one all thought was dead to unbind himself and to come out, or sitting at dinner and jockeying between the one who prepared him for death and the one who will betray him, and keeping both of them still to the very end. It is true that in an age of the pressing reality of climate change, efficiency is no small concern. In a worldwide economy reeling from pandemic lockdowns and job losses and wage stagnation and war, careful budgeting is a responsibility we owe to one another. In a time when wealth continues to be distributed unevenly and with no accounting to justice, stewardship that provides and prioritizes care for the poor and reparation to the marginalized is a must for the Church of Jesus Christ. Faithful stewardship is not the issue at hand here, but rather what motivates it. What do we hold on to as we hold that purse or that expensive jar of oil? The story Mary told with the ritual of anointing flows into the pattern that Jesus set, unconditional and extravagant and lavish, love and devotion poured out with gratitude, because she had witnessed with her very own eyes that death did not have the last word. Conversely, the story Jesus told, the story Judas told, with the ritual of pragmatic stewardship diverged to a form of performative allyship, bound up in anxiety and held tightly to the chest because he could not see beyond the finality of death. And he was terrified. In our most uncertain moments when pushing death away, we do this. We work to control every second, every account for every decision, manage every relationship to our own end, for our own purpose. And in our rash attempts, sometimes we end up covering up. We mar, we deny the beauty that love lays out for us, the fullness of life that is in Christ. 
A table is set before us this morning, as it is often in this place, as it was for Jesus and his friends in Bethany. Perhaps you have come to this table before, or maybe it has been a while. It is not necessarily a fancy table. The food on it is rather plain. It's made holy, though, by Christ's presence that joins us here. Just as Jesus did with Judas and Martha and Lazarus and Mary, we come as we are, holding tightly to what we fear, what's hurt us, the pain we have, our minds busy with a hundred other things, contemplating a future we never imagined possible, desiring desperately to draw near and to find connection. At this ritual feast, we tell the story of love. Love that broke the bonds of death. Love that makes space for all. Love that inspires and challenges us to love back. And not just the one who loved us first, but the poor, the lonely, the imprisoned, the fearful, the dying, the sick, the neighbor, the one who gives too much, and the one who betrays. It is this love that motivates all other loves. It is this one that we cannot keep to ourselves. So we are commanded to share it. For in life and in death, we belong to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.